Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Chattering with ISFM, brought to you in collaboration with IDEX and Perina. In this episode, I'm in discussion with Dr. Zoe Belshaw, and we're going to be talking about senior wellness clinics. Is prevention better than a cure? But unsurprisingly on this topic, we expanded into wellness clinics in general, and also a discussion around contextualised care, the interaction that's really required between the vet, the caregiver, and the cat itself. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. What do you see as the benefits to senior screening and wellness screening clinics? Yeah, I think that's a really great place to start because if there's no benefits to it, then we're not going to be wanting to do them. I think the big ones are picking up new problems before they can negatively impact the cat, but also monitoring existing problems. It's also a really good opportunity to talk to owners, to bond with our clients from personal experiences. Having an older pet can be really hard work. It can feel quite isolating with problems like cognitive dysfunction, which may disrupting owner's sleep. And they may quite not know what's going on. So there's lots of things where I think we can really help support owners. And really, these are for owners to discuss things with us as much as us to screen the cat. So supporting the owner and the cat as a pair to kind of to age healthily together and checking that the owner's really got all the tools that they need and your veterinary input to help spot any problems that might be emerging before they get to be too problematic. I think that's a really interesting point about the impact of aging pets on the owner. You mentioned things like cognitive dysfunction and many of us with older pets know it's harder to do things like go away for longer holidays when you've got that concern of leaving a pet on their own or having to organise someone maybe with pets a little bit more knowledge than what you'd needed previously to look after it. So that that impact is really important. Yeah, I think that's a really big one, actually. I ran a series for a while in the, the veterinary record called What's Your Client Thinking? And the very first one of those was the owner of a cat with a chronic kidney disease whose cat lived two and a half years longer than she thought it would. And at the beginning of this cat's illness trajectory, she took on doing all of these things which she thought, this is going to be fine because it's probably not going to sadly be for very long and I don't mind doing it. Two and a half years later, she was still doing all these things and with the cat having increasing problems and she found it really hard to go away because it was such a big responsibility for somebody else to look after the cat, essentially to be making decisions on her behalf when she was away. And I think we really underestimate that, plus also the concern that owners have as their pets, very much loved often pets age, around making quality of life decisions, around juggling different medications, different health needs. Different priorities in a multi-cat household particularly can be really challenging and trying to balance the needs and diets of different cats. So I think there's lots and lots of things that we can talk about in these clinics as well as just obviously focusing on the physical exam. Without the owner, we can't really do anything to fix the cat. So it's so important to have them on board and to make sure that they're as well supported as they can be. And there's a really big role for us in doing that, I think. I think that's, that's really important to be considering that emotional load that you mentioned earlier as well. They're all things that we really need to be taking into consideration. Absolutely. There's no point having a gold standard kind of inverted commas care package if it's something that the owner and the cat just can't do. You know, there's no point prescribing medication a cat can't take. There's no point setting up a series of consultations for a client who can't get their cat into a basket or who is really worried about transporting their cat, it's not going to happen. So contextualized care is so, so important. Looking at the cat, the owner and ourselves, what facilities we've got, what knowledge we have, what we can realistically provide and, and tailoring the care and not feeling that we need to be beholden to a specific set of guidance that somebody else has written that might just not be right for, for us and for the pets in front of us. Really important. Some of the stuff we're talking about today is based on very much guidance and guidelines. 
But that contextualization piece, I think, is always really important. And I think as vets, maybe we sometimes get slightly hung up on the, what we should be doing, what's the best thing we should be doing in terms of that physical health. But the CAT compliance and the owner buy-in compliance and ability to perform some of these things are equally as important. And I think it's a balancing act between all those three factors, and that's going to achieve the best outcome for the individual patient. So I guess when we then start to think about senior clinics and wellness programs, what sort of ages do you think we should be starting to maybe increase the frequency of appointments or start to maybe expand on what we're doing within those regular wellness checks? You need to know who you're going to include in these when you're going to be advertising and educating your team about it. And advice does vary quite widely as to when to start. And it may be dependent on your cat population. We know from surveys like the PDSA's pet poor survey that the number of cats presenting for routine consultations such as boosters really drops off. So even just getting them through the door once a year is a great start. But International cat care define a mature cat as being about 7 to 10, a senior cat as 11 to 14, and what used to be geriatric has now been rebranded, which I think is fantastic, as a super senior, as 15 plus. And you can pick one of those time points very commonly. We know that mature cats do start to show these problems from 7 plus. So many clinics will initiate checks then. Some will wait until they're 10. So potentially starting a check on an annual basis from 7 and then starting to move into potentially annual up to twice a year checks in that senior 11 to 14 bracket if you've got the right cat the right owner and the right circumstances even going up to three to four times a year in those super seniors very much again tailoring it on what the owner and the cat feel is right for them and also what problems you've got the more you screen then the more you find certainly i know from your work at, at liverpool what age do you enroll cats from in, in the liverpool program between seven and ten and we're now it's coming into our seventh year of data collection so they hope that the next stage of analysis and the work will be starting to refine a little bit more about what test and when and it was really interesting when you said the more you look for things the more you find and within that cohort part of what we were doing was including an orthopedic assessment at each appointment as well and whilst we weren't doing x-rays, we couldn't say definitively that these cats have osteoarthritis or degenerative joint disease. We were starting to see a really high number of them, over 50%. We're just showing changes on their orthopedic assessment that may have indicated we need to be starting to think about osteoarthritis in cats. When we think about intensity of our appointments and what we should be doing test-wise, if we start to be thinking about cats from sort of seven years of age, we found an awful lot of dental disease and potentially indications that the musculoskeletal system may be starting to experience some pain and we may need to be looking at interventions on that as well. So they were really common. But those are things that we don't necessarily need to do additional testing for. We need to be making sure that we're doing a really good thorough examination. So I definitely agree with you that getting cats back into the vet clinic is really important. Yeah, so I think probably just even starting to emphasise we'd like to see your cat once a year between the ages even of seven and 10, even just if it's for a history take, a full clinical exam, a body condition score, a weight check, a muscle condition score, and a general chat without necessarily even needing to do any extra stuff at that point in time if there's no indication of any additional problems. But again, tailoring that for different owners, but then when they move into that more senior bracket, thinking about potentially building in more tests. So very much rather than it being a one-size-fits-all. And, and again, that might help people financially as well. There are advantages to seeing those cats, even just getting through the door to do what seems to us like the basics may be incredibly valuable for both the cat and, and, and the client. 
that's, I think, a really important message that hopefully will reinforce during this podcast, because definitely when we found when we were enrolling for that ageing cohort, a lot of the cats from the population that we were recruiting from had been neutered and had kitten vaccines. And then they may have had one or two appointments where there'd been a, a trauma incident or a cat bite abscess, but a large proportion of them weren't coming in for regular wellness checks for boosters. So, And the other thing that I found in quite interesting with it, we're perhaps seeing lower prevalence of some of the diseases that we thought we would be seeing in higher prevalence at this age range. And whilst we wouldn't consider ourselves an interventional study, just the fact that we've been providing free wellness checks on a biannual basis for some of these cats now the last six years, that in itself actually might have been an intervention. So I think there's, to me, potentially some benefits that we need to explore a little bit more and maybe get some more data on just getting cats through the door for a good thorough examination. I'll hopefully have some more interesting stuff to report on that in the future, but I'm definitely thinking at least at this point, there's just a benefit in that. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure there is. I think any education is intervention and getting owners to just even be aware of what things you're looking for, what things to look out for. I would personally call that an intervention. So I'm not particularly surprised because the more switched on owners are to look at things. Repeatedly in my PhD, I had owners saying like, we, when we go to a vet for an annual visit, what we'd really like is to be told what to look out for next. We don't necessarily want a review of what's going on and oh, fantastic, isn't he doing well or everything's stable? We want to be told what's coming next, what do we need to look out for? And that's exactly what it sounds like you've done with your healthy ageing clinic is to provide owners with that information about this is what we're looking for, this is what might come next at the next stage. If you see these things, this is what they might be and this is what we need to do. We need to have as a thing that's really going to proceed almost launching these clinics in a practice is really raising the awareness and educating our owners about the fact that there are many things that are thought to be just old age and actually they're not. And it's not about us making money by trying to do tests and sell products. It's about really these things actually being things that the cats can be helped with if we diagnose them and can help them to live longer, healthier, happier lives. And that that will have lesser an impact on your life as well if they're managing their conditions. I think on our side, the reason why I didn't really think it was an intervention is because we were just asking questionnaire questions every year. But those were the questions, have you seen this? Have you seen that? So naturally people were thinking, okay, this is something I need to look out for. What is an interesting thing? And then this is probably, I, I guess I would argue a little bit more apparent with cats than dogs as they are potentially quite good at hiding sides of disease. And so there are some things that until stuff gets quite bad, we won't necessarily know that this is starting to go on. Hypertension is probably a good example of that target organ damage, acute blindness is often sometimes that first sign. So when we start to think about what diagnostic tests we should include and when, what sort of recommendations would you be considering for those? Yeah, I think, as you said, there's lots of problems that cats are pretty good at hiding, aren't they? Hypertension being an excellent one, that unless they get retinal detachment or some other sort of secondary problem associated with that, then it is pretty difficult for owners to spot these things. And similarly, with some of the PUBD type problems, I really like Sarah Caney's advice that every older cat should have a litter tray in the house, just so that owners can have a bit of an idea as to what their urine output is like, because many of these outdoor peeing cats, the owners may just have no idea what their thirst and their, and their urination is actually like. The diagnostic tests need to be informed by what potential problems these cats might have. And the big ones that we're going to commonly think about, I think in older cats, are going to be hypothyroidism, chronic kidney disease, hypertension, diabetes mellitus, which we know will in- increase in prevalence with age. 
and owners are probably more likely to recognize Zonzon too because they're going to be associated with probably clinical signs of your thirst, urination, vocalization, potentially weight changes. ISFM, International Cat Care, have done some great work at increasing our awareness of like looking at how they go up and down stairs and ability to jump and things like that. So that's another one on our radar. We've also got problems that we might not have thought about quite so much around cardiac disease, overweight and obesity, long claws, dental disease, deafness, constipation. So when we're thinking about all of these things that might be going on, as ever, the really key diagnostic tests are going to be really a history, a clinical exam. I think those are the big things that we must make sure we always do. Similarly, doing our weight check, our body condition score, ideally our muscle condition score. And the website Cat Care for Life's got some really nice information about what we can think about doing. But obviously then, depending on what we might find on a clinical exam, plus or minus, if we want to get into doing routine screening, we can think about including cystocentesis to check our urine-specific gravity and our dipstick. If you can cyst a cat competently and confidently, then that's a really handy thing to be able to do. And equally, hematology and biochemistry can certainly have their place, certainly absolutely if they're guided by clinical examination, but also as a routine screening tool. We can use those to pick up these early signs of chronic kidney disease and other end organ damage that we might get from hypertension. As a bolt-on again, then if you've got a compliant cat, if you're confident, competent, you've got the right setting, thinking about oscillometric blood pressure measurement too can be a really a, a good adjunct of something else that we can, can think of doing. And similarly, ophthalmoscopy to just check those retinae and see what can be going on there. So I think there's a whole gamut of different tests we can perform, whether we should perform every test on every cat in every clinic. I think probably we shouldn't, but I think we should always do the history taking. We should always do the clinical exam and we should always ask those open questions for, of owners saying, is there anything you're worried about? Is there anything that you think's changed? Is there any questions that you've got? Is there anything that you think you'd like to know about between the period of this examination and the next one? Because it's those kind of pauses and those open questions that actually may point to some of the big things that you might not necessarily pick up in your history or clinical exam, or that might be something that's a really tiny thing, but is a really big problem for the owner. And that might be the, yeah, my cat can't get out the cat flap anymore, or it started yowling at two in the morning and it's waking me up and it's making it dangerous for me to drive to work because I'm really struggling. We can use a questionnaires, as, as you said, you do at Liverpool. So it's a mix of, yeah, history, clinical exam, and then those adjunct hematology, biochemistry, cysto, blood pressure and an and ophthalmoscopy. Plus or minus, if you want to do ortho exams, if you've got indications for that, whether that's a physical exam again, or whether it's having a place that a cat can run around and climb and really just observing them in, in your consulting room, seeing what they're up to, checking the coat all of those bits and bobs. Yeah, I think that's often the take-home message from this. You can get a lot from cats if you're able to do a good thorough physical exam. And I'll just do a quick plug for the cat-friendly clinic scheme on that one as well, because the happier the cat is in the vet clinic, the easier it is to do a full clinical exam on them too. Absolutely. A useful one to consider. And I think something that's a really good advice was to make sure that owners are really confident in how to transport a cat to the clinic. And that, again, is, is something that we can all do. But owners may be really worried about how to get the cat in the carrier, how to get the carrier in the car, whether the cat's going to soil itself. Because if you've got a cat that's arrived stressed out, covered in poo, that you can't get out of the box, you can still do a really good history take. You can still observe the cat. You can still potentially weigh the cat, but you're going to be pretty limited in what else you can do. And it may be that having had that experience once, the owner is going to say, do you know what? I am absolutely not going to opt into doing this four times a year. Like, that's not me. Making sure before you start that they've got all of that information, that they're confident about getting the cat to you. And as you say, absolutely having the right waiting room set up 
and thinking about all of those things that cats need to make them calm in a clinical setting is so important. Anybody booking these needs to be getting leaflets information and, and just even a phone call to just check that they're happy to get the cat to you and to give advice. It can start when these are kittens. Having done that early on, you'll then much more easily be able to get these cats keeping coming back to you because they'll be happy to travel. That's a really important point. Every cat's an individual. One of the barriers we found, even with offering a, a free service, sometimes there's a fear that we're going to find something. And so there's the piece to discuss around how we can be communicating our findings, whether we haven't found anything or we have found something, and how we can maybe allay some of those fears. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really big one that so many may avoid presenting their pet to the clinic. Certainly when I was working in the PDSA, that was a relatively common thing that unfortunately we'd get animals presented with very late stage disease because other owners had learned from their neighbours that they took their pet to the vets and their pet was euthanized. And that kind of led to a self-perpetuating thing in certain small communities where these animals were only being presented with such late stage disease that there really was nothing that we could do. And it was really hard to break that cycle because it did positively reinforce itself that if you wait until you've got a large ulcerated mass, then unfortunately it may be really hard for us to be able to do anything. And so I think owners are going to be worried about finding something, but I think emphasizing the fact that we're getting better and better at feline medicine now, and there are more and more solutions. Cats can live happily and healthily with a lot of these diseases, whether it's chronic kidney disease, whether it's diabetes mellitus, whether it's hypertension, we've got treatments for these things. So I think emphasizing that these things are really common and that the majority of cats will have something and that there is something that you can do and that there are multiple different solutions for many of these different problems. There'll be, be different formulations of medication. There'll be different ways of managing problems potentially, I think is really important. As we age, we almost always get something, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it's going to be a serious thing or if it is a serious thing, then much better for us to find it sooner and be able to do something about it. And equally, if we don't find anything, then we can absolutely celebrate success. And yes, there can be some owner framing of the fact that I've spent all this money and now you didn't find anything and it was a waste of money. And I think we can tend probably to worry more about that actually than our owners do. You can be really delighted actually for the owner and the cat that that you didn't find anything and that they've got a clean bill of health. I would hope that owners would be really happy about it, but it's also... Again, really important that you are taking the time to educate and inform owners. So even if you haven't found anything on clinical exam, making sure you're taking that time to be able to answer any questions they have, discuss any concerns and provide them with free advice will make it feel that your advice is something that they've paid for. There's a lot of advice, especially around things like dietary changes, cats are mm -hmm. getting older, or how we can be modifying the home environment, especially when we consider how prevalent um, osteoarthritis is in cats as they get older. And even if they're not at the stage that we feel that an intervention like an onsteroidal or another type of analgesia is required, there's a lot we can do in terms of advice around maybe dietary changes or home environmental modification as well. And I think that communication piece is, is really useful. I always find the dietary one quite interesting because again, there can be this perception that we're trying to sell them something. How do you fit dietary advice into your consultations? Yeah, I think it's really tricky. And cats can be so fussy and owners can be so delighted that they finally found something that cats will consistently eat that I'm cautious to chuck that all away and replace it with a bag of something that's got the word veterinary on it. But certainly adding increasing moisture content can be a really good idea, whether that's adding just a little bit of extra water to cat food. That can be one of the most useful things I think that we can do in these senior cats to reduce the risk of constipation and keep that water going. And really important, again, with any of these things, look at the snacks that these animals are getting, because there's no point spending a fortune on 
a specific bag of veterinary food where the cat's having 25 packets of dreamies a day you know so it's getting that balance right and again thinking about whether that really is the best thing for the animal and then what the client wants what they can manage how many other cats there are in the house are you going to be feeding 25 cats on a renal diet if it's a multi-cat household so it's really a case of talking to the owner and really thinking through the day and how practically they're going to manage so many of these cats that we haven't really covered yet uh a multi-morbid, they've got loads of different problems going on at once. So you might be trying to trade off your hypothyroidism, your osteoarthritis, your early stage chronic kidney disease, plus or minus diabetes, diabetes mellitus. They might be constipated and they might be a mainly outdoor cat that's really hard to, to medicate. And a lot of the time with these animals, we are having to just try to juggle all of these different conditions that may on paper require really contrasting, conflicting management plans. And it's really important to keep stepping back and seeing this cat as a whole rather than a series of semi-broken or semi-functional body parts and think, well, what's going to work for this individual cat exactly? What's going to work for this household? Which is the most important of these diseases for me to focus on? And actually, that might mean I've got to drop the ball a bit on this one. But this is the one at the moment that's currently impacting this cat's quality of life more and is likely to impact this cat's quality of life in the future. And it may be you may be managing one really well for a while. And letting another one slide a little bit and then picking up that other one as the significance for that individual cat becomes more substantial. So, yeah, it it is really tricky. And the fact that we've now got diets that are a bit more blended is so helpful rather than it being you hypothetically need to get out six different packets for the same cat because it's got all the different conditions. So, yeah, definitely. that's, That's a big improvement. Yeah. And I think what is the piece that's having the most significant impact on the cat's health and quality of life? And focusing on that is really important. We all attend quite a lot of CPD. And I think one of the more engaging ones I went to once was a a series of of cases with cats with comorbidities and trying to work out what was the best diet to put them on. And it it really made your brain work because you're like, oh, I would have done that reflexly. But actually, they're right. This is the one that probably needs the more dietary focus on. So I think that piece is really interesting. And as part of my PhD work, I attended a few human aging research conferences. And one of the things that I found really interesting, one of those was where they were talking about this decreased thirst signaling in older people. And we see all the warnings every time Britain has a heat wave, especially focusing on older people to make sure that they are drinking properly because dehydration becomes a big complicating factor. And when we think about cats, you mentioned constipation earlier on as an issue that we see. And there's that pain related element with osteoarthritis Mm. that may cause them to hold on a little bit. But also there's the fluid loss with chronic kidney disease and the fact that they're probably not drinking as much as what they should do. And so I don't think I'm aware of anything that proves that cats have that. My suspicion is that they probably do. Yeah, it's really interesting and it's something that we all probably need to just be more and more mindful of with climate change, really. We're getting these these hot spells and we see the advice for elderly people to drink more and stay cool. We're good at telling owners of dogs not to walk them in the heat. But yeah, thinking about proactively advising owners of senior cats to up their water intake during these hot spells, especially if there are cats that prefer to drink water sources from outside that will potentially evaporate a lot more quickly. So that's probably another piece that maybe we're not doing quite enough with there. I think people are always a little bit surprised when I say I'm a big fan of feeding cats a mixed wet and dry diet, but that was always part of my reasoning that actually that water intake piece as they get older is a really useful one to consider. And I think you are right. It's definitely a part of the world that we're going to have to be more proactive in. Yeah. 
if let's say people listening to the, the podcast have become inspired and they want to start maybe doing a bit more senior testing or getting a senior clinic going in their clinic, what sort of tips and advice would you give them to do that? I think it, it's really important to have a load of foundations before you even start about opening your doors. We've already discussed potential age bands. You need to think about who is going to run them. The challenge certainly in the United Kingdom that veterinary nurses are not allowed to make a formal diagnosis. And so whilst it's fantastic to have nurses running aging clinics because nurses are really well trained in these things, they can be great communicators, owners can be much less concerned potentially about raising issues with nurses than they would be about vets because they may feel that the nurse can't you know, rush them into doing something quite so much. But equally, it can lead to challenges where a nurse needs to make a diagnosis or finds an abdomas or see something that they're concerned about and then needs to get a vet to come and sign it off. When we're talking about osteoarthritic cats, for example, many of these cats, the owners report that they're stiff or they might be stiff and you can't necessarily diagnose osteoarthritis as a veterinary nurse, but you certainly can diagnose stiff. Therefore, here's all of the environmental modifications we could do. But I think that's a really big one to think about. If you've got nurses who are running the clinics, what are they going to do? If they find a problem, have you got enough nurses consistently available who are going to be happy to be client facing? And then if it's going to be vets doing it, then is it going to be separate clinics? Is it going to be something that's just available as and when an owner wants it? Or are you going to say, you know, open the doors at office two on a Tuesday and say, that's my senior cat hour? Because I think there's pros and cons. It's really important for your clinic to work out exactly how they're going to work because the worst thing to do is have vets that don't know when to recommend it, have receptionists that don't know when to recommend them, have clients turning up and then they're not be the right person available or the right kit available. So practice meeting, who's going to run them, who's going to be included, what tests are going to be included, what's going to happen if you find a problem, have you got a protocol for whether it's a vet or a nurse, what's the next step for each of those things, potentially thinking about developing a questionnaire, sent that in advance by email before they come in or that the nurse or the vet uses that as a standardized tool so that we're always checking over the same things again. Make sure you've got the right leaflets in place to give advice. Some clinics are including these in sort of pet health clubs so that they're pseudo free of charge. You pay your monthly subscription and then when the pet hits senior, the price goes up a little bit, but these clinics are effectively free because you're, you're paying that just monthly subscription versus others will charge for that. And you've got to think about whether you're going to discount the charging for a package of tests versus how much those individual tests would cost were you to just come straight through the vet for a non-health screening and be very transparent about what's included, what's not, how much it's going to cost and be really clear as to what the pathways are going to be for next steps. Walk yourself through this before you start setting up. It's really easy to have one enthusiastic staff member who says, yeah, I'm going to take it on. And for a senior vet to be like, yeah, brilliant off you go, run with it. You take ownership of this, fantastic. And that poor person then can be left standing in a consulting room with nobody booked to come in because the communications through the rest of the practice haven't been there to support them. Or that person goes on mat leave or leaves. And then what had been a really successful clinic falls apart because nobody else wanted to take it on board. So I think yeah, everybody in the whole practice needs to be on board. You need to educate everybody from reception through to the, the most senior vet as to to what's included to signpost these things and be really confident that everybody is on board with what isn't included, how they run, so that you're getting a consistent approach every time these clients come in. So sorry, that was a quite a long thing and it, it makes it sound a bit daunting and hard, but it shouldn't be. But there are so many, unfortunately, of these types of clinics that don't succeed or 
that reach a block in the road where people think, oh yeah, we've got it all ready to go and and then nobody comes. It's so, so important to have that foundation and to be advertising them in the right way through Facebook, through the reception desk and through the vets in the consulting rooms, really selling it with the right language that it's not just about testing. It's not just about screening. It's that opportunity to come and have a chat. We'll teach you about what to look for. We can help you with any problems that you've got. Potentially even thinking about setting up a senior cap club so that owners can talk to each other and share problems, their advice and tips and even thinking about having a once a month tea club or something like that, where people leave their cats at home and just come in and have a chat and share tips about how to manage a diabetic cat or what it's like to live with a cat with cognitive dysfunction and allowing owners to feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves. I think that's your point around that agreement and consistency and all of that is a huge part of the momentum, isn't it? Owners get frustrated if they're getting a different message every time they're coming through. So I think consistency is important. And I think it is important to consider all of those other complicating factors because currently we're in an environment where we're short on clinical staff and that momentum, that ability to be able to keep things running is really important. I think you raised a really nice point at the end there around that sort of peer support as well. And we know that senior cats have a massive benefit to their owners as well. That sort of human animal bond. If the pets are aging well and they're invested in their pet's health, that also helps their own health as well. And I think we can agree that mental health support of having a pet is really positive. There's also potentially sometimes a mental health concern when your pet's unwell. So the more we can do to support their healthy pet, I think the better it is for their owner as well. Yeah, I completely agree. Certainly that mental health downside for some of these owners of older pets where they're worried about what might happen, especially elderly owners who are worried about how they're going to cope with giving that care. As cats are living longer and longer, elderly people may have acquired cats relatively late in their own age and may be quite concerned about how they're going to happen if they need to go into hospital and providing support and information about options available, whether that's the Cinnamon Trust in the UK, whether you've got peripatetic nurses who could go and help visits at home, that kind of thing. All of those things are so important, I think, and can really lead to a mental health burden, actually, for owners of elderly pets. The owner of the older pet can increasingly get get quite worried and upset if they don't feel they're being supported or they haven't got the information that they need. They're not quite sure what the plan's going to be next. They're worried about what the vet or the nurse might say the next time they go in. They're worried that they might say that's the end or they're worried they're going to get pushed into doing a test they can't afford or worried they're going to get given medication they just can't dispense yeah all of those things are are, are super duper important to cover and to allay fears about teaching owners about how to pill cats if they've not done it before giving them links to, to to really helpful websites can all just be such tiny things that make these clinics a success rather than a, I'll come once, then I'm not coming back. We have to reframe some of this when we think about the current economic climate as well. Everyone's in a situation where their money isn't going as far as what it used to. So what would be your sort of final thoughts on how we can convince clients that this is a worthwhile investment of both their time and their money? Yeah, I think it's hard. And I wonder if increasingly we do need to do a tiered approach where you potentially even just offer the history clinical exam weight check as a one level and then have the option to do the other things albeit that it's not ideal it would be better you know this idea of gold standard versus contextualized care again if the only clinic that you offer 
is all the bells and whistles that it's got to be cystocentesis, oscillometric blood pressure, blood tests. And it's like, well, I know they can't get blood out of my cat, so I can't access that clinic. Well, actually, what I'd really like to be able to do is to go in and have a chat because I'm worried about something, but now I can't go because they've said it's got to have all this stuff done and I know that's not going to suit me. So um, thinking about tailoring that, which again can help to tailor costs, but I think it really is that idea that if we catch something early, then it may well be less expensive in the long run. But I think the big thing is really demonstrating what the value is going to be, what's going to be included, and really making sure that what you say is going to happen is going to happen in terms of that verbal support, that time to listen, and having the right person in the room who's going to be knowledgeable enough to answer the questions, I think is what's going to make this a success or not, really. Yeah, I, I have to say I'd completely agree. I think we can set up a structure, but we need to be flexible within that structure based on the individual client needs, cat's compliance, and also our findings as well. I think because I, I originally had a shelter medicine background, my thoughts on diagnostic tests are always, is this test going to change anything that I'm going to do? And if the answer is yes, then that's a test I want to run. If the answer is no, that test would be a nice to have and, and for my information, a nice to know, but it's not essential. If it's not going to change what you do, then don't do it. I think there's an increasing concern in the profession about people not doing gold standard care within ourselves, about being negligent, about missing things. But actually, if that's informed consent with the client and you and the client have looked at what they can practically do with this individual patient, I think it's absolutely right to contextualize that care and say, do you know what? Yes, the ideal would be to do that. But at the moment, that's not the appropriate thing to do for this patient and this owner. And to make peace with that, we can't always do what we might consider to be the best thing. And what we consider to be the best thing might well not be the best thing, actually, for, for, for that kind of owner pet dyad. So I think we need to be much more at peace with that than we, than we perhaps currently are. Less is definitely more in, in some instances. But the history, the clinical exam, the what are you worried about, the what can I do to help? is probably more valuable than any diagnostic test, as at least as a basics. Definitely. Oh, thank you so much, Zoe, for your time. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. And thank you, IDEX and Perina, for supporting the production of this bonus episode. We'll be back again at the end of the month with our regular episode. If you don't want to miss out, do make sure you've signed up to Chattering with ISFM on your preferred podcast platform.